Hello everyone, this is Maria Lipman in our Pona's Eurasia podcast, featuring a series of discussions about Russian Eurasia, about the region's politics, and about other Russian Eurasia-related topics. In the past year or so, Russia has become the scene of rapid and disquieting political developments. The political regime has become more repressive. Newly adopted legal constraints on public expression have practically outlawed any forms of oppositionist political activism. Many activists, in particular those who had plans to run for the Duma in September this year, have been prosecuted, fined, jailed, or pushed out of the country. The role of Siloviki, that has been steadily rising over the past years, has further grown in recent months. The policy of intimidation is no longer limited to the participant of protest rallies. It has also targeted those media outlets that until recently were able to pursue more or less independent editorial lines. A new law seeks to take under control all forms of informal educational activities, such as public lectures, roundtable discussions, seminars, etc. Another innovation is the disenfranchisement of those involved, even not directly, in the activities of the organizations recognized as extremists. This new regulation is apparently specially adopted against Alexei Navalny's associates and sympathizers. The government initiated proceedings aimed at designating Navalny's anti-corruption fund an extremist organization. The hearings were closed and the court promptly recognized Navalny's organization as extremist. In a glaring example of retroactive enforcement, now anyone who had in the past donated to or otherwise assisted the anti-corruption fund will be ineligible to run in elections. This flurry of repressive initiatives, and the list is, of course, far from complete, is obviously related to the upcoming Duma elections. But the current crackdown can hardly be expected to ease after the new Duma is in place. Are these developments situational and responsive in nature? Shall we look at them as a logical evolution of the Russian political regime? If we look at those developments from a political science perspective, is it still the same regime that Putin built earlier at some point? Or should we be talking about a regime transformation, a new political quality? I will discuss it with my guests, Grigory Golosov of the European University in St. Petersburg, Hello, Grigori. Hello. And Henry Hale of George Washington University. Hello, Henry. Hi. So how do you, as political scientists, characterize the Russian political regime? Electoral authoritarianism is a category that is most commonly used to describe it. What does this category imply? Is Putin's Russia a classical example? If not, what's peculiar about it? Grigori, recently you used uh, the term personalist dictatorship as applies to Russia. Does this mean that we're talking about a different regime, different from the way it used to be, and then what are we comparing it with? Well, I think that uh, there is no such thing as a classical electoral authoritarian regime. Uh, There are many varieties, and uh, Russia is one of them. But I must say that it is not typical in itself as a variety of uh, electoral authoritarian regimes. The majority of electoral authoritarian regimes that existed in the past originated from non-electoral regimes. Those were 
monarchies, party regimes, military dictatorships, and so on. Russia belongs to a very limited category of authoritarian regimes that use elections and that originate from electoral regimes of a democratic type. That is, Russia is how I name it in my recent book, a post-democracy. There are few post-democracies among the electoral authoritarian regimes today, and there were even fewer in the past. This main prognostication, I mean, conservative science-based prognostication regarding the prospects of the Russian regime, very difficult. But yes, as it is, it is an electoral authoritarian regime, and at the same time, it is a personal dictatorship. How this can happen? Well, the logical answer is that if we assess the essential qualities of regimes of this kind, we can deductively conclude that they can be nothing else but personal dictatorships. The regimes of non-electoral origins can possess their own institutionalized ways of acquiring power and transmitting power. It is clear that in monarchies, its inheritance in military regimes, it is intra-elite deals among the top military commanders in parties. This regime was created by propelling to power of one person, and no party has particular strong grasp on him. What we are witnessing now is that the prospects for winning fair elections for Putin personally, or for a political party supported by Putin personally, are slim. Therefore, in order to go on with the electoral mode of the functioning of the regime, it is necessary to ensure that in these particular elections, United Russia Party wins, and in the 2024 elections, Putin personally wins. Given that the resources for mobilizing the patriotic sentiment in the electorate are deteriorating, the only way to ensure this victory is to eliminate all legal opposition that can be threatening to the authorities, to the prospects of winning the elections, hence the wave of repression. I think that the only aspect of the situation that is actually illogical that can be viewed as entirely overdone is what happened to Navalny in last August. That was certainly not in the best interest of the regime. Navalny could be politically neutralized in a thousand different ways. Of course, uh, he could be simply imprisoned without going as far. And this uh, refers us to the personalistic nature of the Russian regime. When uh, decisions are made by a single person, this person tends to make mistakes depending on his or her emotional condition, his personal relationship to this or that phenomenon. But uh, in, all, in all other ways, what is going on now, I mean the wave of political repression and the suppression of the independent media is an absolutely normal pre-election process in electoral authoritarian regimes. So my answer is yes, Russia is going on as an electoral authoritarian regime. At the same time, it is a personal dictatorship of Vladimir Putin, 
these two aspects are logically compatible. And what we are going to witness in September is completely manipulated elections, deprived of any meaningful participation of opposition-minded politicians. And this turn will open the way for Putin's conservation and power in 2024. And it explains the scale of the current repression. Outside of the electoral context, this scale of repression would be unnecessary. Now, given the electoral prospects, it becomes necessary for the Russian authorities. Okay. So, Henry, how would you answer this question? And also, how does the framework of paternal presidentialism that you've been writing a lot, how does that relate to the electoral authoritarianism? Yeah, thank you. I mean, I think categories like electoral authoritarianism, hybrid regime, you you name it, can be useful for highlighting certain aspects of a political system at a given time, such as the system is autocratic, there are elections, we can call it electoral authoritarianism. But I'm not sure how much they help us in understanding the sort of longer term dynamics of the regime in Russia, just like in other countries, because they tend to apply at a certain point in time, but then the system changes. It becomes much harder to tell, is this across the line or not? So the way I tend to think about the political system is that, first of all, Russia is a system in which arguably political economic networks are the main political actors, not so much political parties or institutions. Instead, what we're talking about are roughly hierarchical networks where you have an informal patron at the top, somebody who might be like an oligarch or a business leader or maybe a leader of a Silovik group, such as kind of the former KGB, the FSB had. And these networks all have their own interests and they tend to compete for authority. And I think that what we see in Russia is a system in which Almost all of the main networks now, certainly all the ones that have any significant influence, are coordinated around the authority of a single patron, and that is Putin. And that's something that he's achieved over the last 20 years. So I'd call this system a single pyramid system. And so the key is then what is required to sustain the coordination of all of these networks around the authority of one person or around even, you know, call it the Kremlin. It requires, or at least it maybe doesn't require all these things, but at least all these things support this coordination. So it would require having some form of political support. Very importantly, it requires that the different actors in the system, especially the ones at the top, all expect the system to continue. They expect Putin to continue to be the chief patron and to be in charge and and have authority because once they start anticipating he's on his way out, you get the succession struggles and it can start to weaken or undermine the system. The system has to function well to preserve that kind of confidence. So you have to have a well-functioning administrative system, repressive apparatus that doesn't make major mistakes. And there has to be manipulation of perceived alternatives, right? Which also feeds back into both support and expectations. So you can have a regime that doesn't have a lot of support, but if nobody else is any better, then uh, the regime can survive. Same thing with expectations. If people don't really like the regime, but kind of expect it to go on forever, then it doesn't make much sense to uh, go out and try to challenge it. And so I think in this kind of system, certainly in Russia, the chief patron can be fairly flexible in adjusting policies to shape this coordination or address different challenges in trying to get all these different political actors in Russia kind of on the same page. And so I do think that what we see in in Russia recently is, is a big change, right? I mean, until maybe 2011, Russia had very few actual political prisoners 
you know, there are a few kind of more fringe politicians that were jailed on one pretext or other, but it's been a steady ramping up of this. And I think with the taking out of Navalny, at least out of kind of a free circulation and his team crackdown on open Russia, the Hodorkovsky linked movement, you know, this is something that hadn't been done to a, a significant extent before. And so, you know, I think you could make the argument that yes, Russia has crossed some kind of regime threshold into a more clearly, purely authoritarian one. At the same time, I do think that there are important distinctions between Russia and other even more authoritarian regimes. So even though Putin seems to have taken pages from the playbooks of neighbors like Lukashenko in Belarus or the Aliyevs in Azerbaijan or Nazarbayev in Kazakhstan, you know, Russia is still not, for example, Turkmenistan or Uzbekistan or even Belarus or Kazakhstan in that while I agree that the most serious, harshest critics are, are being taken out in this current crackdown, Significant alternatives are remaining in the system that the regime allows to exist. They're allowed to get on the ballot. I mean, we'll see who actually gets on the ballot. But, you know, even in recent years, we've seen that they occasionally win even lower level elections. The Yablica Party, a relatively pro-democracy, pro-market party, um, Communist Party. Again, one could debate how loyal it is or how potentially loyal it is. So these parties are widely considered tame compared to Navalny and his movement. But I would argue they're still meaningful. So Navalny has been arrested, but his uh, smart voting strategy is still viable. The smart voting strategy is an idea that, well, as long as there are some alternatives to the ruling party uh, or the dominant party on the ballot, so in this case, uh, alternatives to the United Russia Party, it still is possible for voters to go to the ballot box and to vote for somebody else other than United Russia. And so even if that party is just there to be kind of window dressing, suddenly, if they get more votes than United Russia, that can throw the political system into some turmoil or at least significantly raise the costs for the, the rulers to hanging on to power and kind of producing results that appear to be a vote of confidence in it. And so I think to the extent that it still allows parties like Yablica and the Communist Party on the ballot, even if the, the playing field is, is tilted way against them and all kinds of hurdles set up, against their ability to actually campaign freely and perform, it's still a meaningful distinction and there's still significant freedoms left in Russia that can be used by the opposition and that adds some uncertainty to Russian politics. And so I would just say that I think the, the regime is still trying to hang on to some of its flexibility. I think it, it, you know the, the Putin regime doesn't want to be uh, non-democratic. They just want to make sure they always win elections. And of course, these things are incompatible. You can't be democratic and make sure you always win. So what they're constantly trying to do is trying to adapt. And I think the repressive turn that we've been seeing recently is an indication that they feel they're, they're out of good options going forward for reasons we can talk about later. Okay. So a single patron, of course, sounds less intimidating than a personalist dictator, but you too, of course, admit that the system has been changing lately. Talking about changes, in your view, when did Putin's regime actually take shape? Uh, Grigory, you mentioned recently the role of Vladislav Surkov in Putin's regime building. Would you please elaborate on that? What was it that Surkov built exactly? Well, I think that uh, the authoritarian turn in Russia has been mostly finalized in 2003-2004. And of course, at that time, Vladislav Surkov played a rather important role in shaping Russian politics. He presided over such uh, crucial measures as changing the electoral system, as uh, limiting the number of political parties, 
in the legal field to just uh, a handful in uh, restricting the freedom of press. I think, however, that the strategy of Surkov as implemented at that time was to create a more institutionalized form of electoral authoritarianism by empowering the United Russia Party and making it a stronghold of the political power in the country in a way that would be vaguely reminiscent to what happened in Mexico under its long-standing authoritarian regime. So uh, Surkov in this way was a sort of strategic thinker. I, I don't know how reflexively he took his own approach. Of course, we can't rely on his own words, but it seems that he did have a strategy. And that strategy logically led to retaining Vladimir Putin in effective power after the Medvedev presidency, allowing Medvedev to take at least the second term. And that was understood by the Russian political elite, some of whom actually supported this alternative. But this was also understood by Vladimir Putin, which, in my view, explains the elimination of Surkov from the Russian power structures. The more personalistic turn in the development of the Russian system occurred later and was greatly assisted by Russia's actions in Ukraine and the following nationalistic mobilization in the electorate. Say, nevertheless, that... Electoral authoritarian regimes are not necessarily institutionalized. What uh, Surkov was doing was good for a long-term survival of the regime, but here he was in clear contradiction with the personal goals of Vladimir Putin. And since it is a personal dictatorship, Putin's word in this situation was, of course, decisive. So the prospects for institutionalizing this regime in a form of, not to say party dictatorship, but in a form of regime is an important role of political parties, faded away, and it was replaced by a more personalistic mode of operation, which is not entirely untypical for electoral authoritarian regimes. In fact, by my observation, this is by far more widespread mode of the existence than a highly institutionalized dictatorship in Mexican style. But that's what happened, in my opinion. Okay. So, Henry, do you agree with 2003, 2004 as the time when the regime more or less took shape? And do you agree with the role of Rodislav Surkov in that? And if you do or if you don't, do you think there was an important turning point at the time when actually Surkov was removed? That is, after the protests of 2011 and 12. Uh, Yes, I think Grigori put it very well. I guess just what I might add is sort of from my perspective, I would actually locate the roots of the system back in the Yeltsin period. And for me, it comes with the institutionalization or the adoption of a presidentialist constitution in Russia. I think formally, if you just looked at the the law and and how it's talked about by lawyers, they would call it a semi-presidentialist system, but in actual practice, it's a system that gives the president a a tremendous amount of power. Um, That was adopted in the referendum of 1993. And I think that basically since that time, you've had the potential for this to emerge. Yeltsin was a very different politician, faced very different circumstances. He was not able to consolidate uh, power in this way, but 
once Putin came in, I think kind of everything fell into place for him to start putting the pieces together. And uh, I would agree totally with uh, Grigori that, but you know, by around 2003, all the elements seem to be more or less in place. That seems to be a turning point. And, uh, you know, he, Grigori in his work has, as well, analyzed a lot of the different key steps that were taken to kind of create the, the system, whatever you want to call it, single pyramid system or electoral authoritarianism, you know, that we see. And I guess just the way I might talk about, you know, Surkov, and again, agreeing with his analysis is that, you know, I think the role of Surkov illustrates the degree of flexibility that the people at the top have, right? They they were working with a certain vision that Surkov was helping them realize. It's not clear that Putin himself was ever like fully on board with Surkov, but at least uh, things were going well for the regime during that time. And so they worked with him to put things together. But then after the big financial economic crises of 2008 and 2009, declining popularity of the regime and a bunch of other problems, you know, it became clear they had to change course, right? You had the big protests of 2011 and 2012. And so, yeah, I, I see that kind of the sidelining of Surkov and his vision for the regime around that time as reflecting a one of the flexible adjustments that the people at the very top of the the system right made to try and preserve their power so they sort of you know sacrificed the particular vision that they were working with Surkov which had been called things like managed democracy or you know kind of a semi-liberal hybrid authoritarian democratic mix with something that looked very different. And so you saw a turn towards an appeal to more conservative values, a greater personalization of the regime around Putin himself as father of the nation. You know, then ultimately you get the annexation of Crimea, which also you know, did a lot to galvanize support and the perception of support around Putin. You know, and finally you get different adjustments like the, this more recent turn to a repression. So I don't think that, you know, we're talking about institutions and institutionalization. Yeah. I mean, there's been a trend towards the weakening of anything that we in the West might call kind of real strong institutions and the kind of institutions that are called institutions that are developed in the regime tend to be one of two things. I mean, I think there are certain spheres where you see actual institutionalization develop on less important matters, you know, kind of health concerns, certain bureaucratic procedures, you know, the, the electronic payments, electronic services, right? But anything that really concerns politics in the most direct way, the rulers tend to be very careful to preserve their own flexibility to make sure that they themselves don't get hemmed in by these institutions which denies the institutions their chief function as institutions, which is to constrain behavior. So they want the institutions to constrain the behavior of others, but not themselves. But the further the regime moves in this more repressive direction, the more meaningless it makes these kind of truly political institutions become as constraints on behavior. And the more the politics that we see tends to reflect the regime's own trying to kind of control opposition, sideline it, change rules situationally based on what it's what's going to benefit it, it, it and deny people equal opportunities to uh, express and pursue their own political ambitions. Okay, uh, so this logically takes us to actually today and the upcoming election in September. Uh, the Kremlin seems to be highly worried about the outcome, and we've talked about that. This wave of repressions and new regulations, new constraints, legal and otherwise. Is there a good reason for the government to be so jittery? And uh, in this sense, what do you expect of the September elections? Grigori, would you please start? Well, of course, they have reasons to be concerned. As I said, 
the economic situation in the country is rapidly deteriorating, uh, the sanctions bite. There are other problems. The country is very slowly recovering after the pandemic. And uh, the patriotic or nationalistic mobilization of the electorate is unlikely before the elections. So this is reflected in the public opinion polling that shows unmistakably that the pro-Putin United Russian Party is deteriorating. What can be done about it? Basically the same thing as uh, happened starting with 2007 to not allow real opposition parties to participate in elections, to permit only those political parties that, came, that can claim limited societal support because they uh, cause aversion in large portions of the population. This uh, applies both to the Communist Party of the Russian Federation and to the Liberal Democratic Party of Russia of nationalistic standing. Both are certainly appealing to some portions of the electorate, but these portions are small and not very likely to expand. Many people in Russia still hate communism as it was materialized in the Soviet Union. And the leader of the Liberal Democratic Party is very controversial. At the same time, the authorities can rely on a large portion of the electorate that can be mobilized by administrative means. Those people who forced him to go into the polls and voting for United Russia Party. This layer of the population is already large and it is permanently growing. And finally, the authorities are aware of the fact that there are still many voters who theoretically can go to the polls and vote no united russia this have to be demobilized and in this sense the very fact that the choice is so limited and restricted to united russia on the one hand and those niche parties the communists the ldpr and uh, third party just russia is uh, very logical because the expectation of the authorities is that there are quite a few people whom we can mobilize administratively. There are some people who will go and vote for United Russia sincerely because uh, relatively large portions of our population are really beneficiaries of the Putin regime and they have good reasons to support him. And those who do not support him and cannot be mobilized just shouldn't turn out they must have nobody to vote for. That is why the strategy of smart vote, as promoted by Navalny and his political supporters, is so important. At its face value, the smart voting strategy is to go to the polls and to vote for those candidates in single-member districts who can win over the United Russia candidates. These alternative candidates can be communists or LDPR members or independents, that doesn't matter. What matters is to go to the polls and to help them defeat United Russia candidates. Now, the second element of the smart vote strategy that is not very articulated is that if one turns out to vote against the candidate of United Russia in the district, then he will probably not vote for United Russia in the party list contest. 
he'll probably vote for something else. This strategy is therefore harmful not only in the plurality portion of the electoral system, but also in the partist section. But it can be prevented by creating a situation in which there are no even distantly credible candidates running against the United Russia candidates. And uh, this is an important part of explanation of why the repressive wave of this year is uh, run so high. Because it is important to prevent anybody who can pose a threat and who can attract voters to the polls, opposition-minded voters to the polls, these people have to be just eliminated. No grounds for smart voting whatsoever. This is one of the main rationales for this wave of repression. The protest wave indeed was quite high, but it has ebbed. Uh, and the public opinion polls show that people do not expect protests in their localities. I mean, much fewer people expect protests in their localities than a few months ago. Also, the approval ratings of Putin and Prime Minister Mishustin have gone up recently. And the sense of whether Russia is on the right track or wrong track has shown that more people believe that the country is on the right track right now. So, Henry, do you think that there is any reason for the Kremlin to be so jittery as the election in September draws closer? Well, Elections in political systems like this are important because uh, you know, even when they are manipulated, they inherently uh, raise the question of who should hold on to power, right? And they not only raise the question, but they provide a concrete moment at which all of the actors in society are supposed to think about this at the same time, right? Whether it's elites in the political system, stakeholders of different kinds, or the masses. And so they're inherently concerning and you know it's true like you said that the regime in some ways still has a certain reservoir of public support um gregory is right obviously to point out that uh, the economy is anemic the crimea effect has been milked dry to a large extent there are no other clear gambits in foreign policy or domestic policy that can be seen to uh, you know, be able to gin up support but certain old sources of support remain for the regime, which uh, include, as Grigori noted, the beneficiaries of the regime themselves, right, who have benefited over economic growth over the couple decades that Putin has been in power. There is substantial support that remains for Putin's style of leadership, for him personally. There is a certain connection between the uh, leadership or the regime and certain values, uh, you know, some conservative values or relatively pro-market or anti-socialist values. And there's a sense of Russia's prominent role in the world and also a sense of Putin as a kind of pragmatic leader who is fending off the hostile or unreliable at best powers in the international arena. But even these sources can grow stale after a while, right? So they're kind of allowing the regime to hold on to a certain amount of support for a certain period of time, but they're not growing support. And we don't see other sources or other areas where they can really grow this support. And you combine this with Putin's own aging, which also inherently raises questions of succession. And so this, of course, leads people to think about, okay, well, you know, Putin is getting older, 
who is going to come after him? And one side effect of kind of chopping all potential rivals down to size is that there are no other clear alternatives, even within your own system, you know, even among Putin's loyalists, you know, who could clearly compete for power. And Putin doesn't want somebody like that to really arise, at least not until he deems it time to promote such a person. And so in this context, especially where every election cycle he's getting older and his hold on power, therefore, is potentially raising more doubts about his longevity, every election cycle is more risky than the previous one. And so I think this is the context in which Duma elections here matter. And I think they've been paving the way at the top of the Russian leadership for what they want to be a successful official result in the Duma elections and the avoidance of instability, first of all, by trying to remove his status as a lame duck by amending the constitution last spring with the, the voting and the passage of the law, which basically meant that Putin now had the formal constitutional right to run for office a couple more times, should he choose to do so, and the current autocratic turn. And I think kind of in this context, one of the key motives for the autocratic turn is precisely that they do feel they have a, a substantial core of support now. This isn't a completely desperate move by a regime that has no support. My uh, sense is that what they think is that they feel they still have sufficient support to be able to pull off this kind of crackdown now, to be able to take out Navalny and sustain a large wave of protests in response, which they appear to have done so far. And I think they also worry that that window might be closing as these other sources of support fade as Putin ages. So the perception within the halls of the Kremlin may be it's better for them to act now rather than to take more risks by waiting before doing something like this until later on, maybe they, they feel they can find some other source of support that will allow them to relax, you know, the current crackdown, which is not popular in Russia. I mean, you know, there isn't a massive outcry uh, among the public for uh, a crackdown, even among people who are pro-Kremlin. So I think a crackdown is a risky move by the authorities, but I think they feel they're at least strong enough now to be able to pull it off and at least survive a few more years, and then they will deal with future challenges as they come up, in particular looking at the 2024 presidential elections, which of course raise the more fundamental question of who should hold power. Well, this take, takes us uh, logically to a conclusion and to my last question. And uh, Henry, you mentioned this word longevity, and you see that the regime has a few more years before It'll have to think about something else. And uh, Grigori, recently, I think uh, you wrote in a piece that I'm not quoting, but I hope I render your idea correctly, that the Russian electoral authoritarianism longevity no longer looks assured. Do I get you correct? And why do you think so? And do you agree with a few more years that Henry mentioned? No, you uh, did understand it entirely correct, but probably because I was not expressing myself very clearly, was that some of the actions put in clear contradiction with the fundamental properties of the system and pose a threat to its long-term survival. That is not entirely characteristic of Russia. Every political regime that includes a significant personal component and at the same time embraces certain institutions. What I meant was that the functioning of the Russian political system became somewhat imbalanced in favor of the personal component in the recent months. Some of the things were vastly overdone by Putin from the point of view of the best interests of the system. 
but I do not uh, see this situation as uh, necessarily having fatal consequences for the regime. And my general opinion is that uh, the system of uh, electoral authoritarianism in Russia, as it exists now, is rather sustainable. I do not see significant threats to the political survival of Putin top of that system and therefore to the survival of the system as such. Unfortunately, because I am not very enthusiastic about this prospect, but my assessment of the prospects is that Putin will run and win in 2024 elections. And I find highly probable that he will stay in power up to 2036 and possibly even further. Because uh, if he survives politically and remains in good mental health and physical condition, nothing will prevent him from ruling further after the 2036 elections. It will depend solely on his will. Of course, Henry is right in discussing the role of uh, power networks that are adjacent to Putin. But I think we take into account that these networks are centered around Putin. They are crucially dependent personally on Putin, and they are increasingly dependent on Putin. I do not see any tendency towards the most powerful figures in the system thinking about changing him at the top. I think that they have good reasons to think about it. But there is no uh, reason for them at all to convert these thoughts into action. Because the risks of going against Putin for the Russian ruling class today are far greater than those of being loyal. And again, I do not see what can change this situation. So my bet would be, my unfortunate bet, I would say, was on rather long-term sustainability of this regime. Okay, so more of the same until 2036 sounds too depressing. I'd rather hope that Henry is right and we will see some kind of change in a few more years, as Henry said. So thank you both very much for this very interesting conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.